Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by activist and founder of You Are Essential, Ashley Marie Preston, where I ask her, am I a self-caring? Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm so excited to officially welcome Ashley Marie Preston for our first, like, like, I'll hold up air quotes and say official Getting Curious episode. <laughs> yes, it's happening. It's happening. We, I, I got to meet you from initially from doing um, the New York City Pride event that you had so graciously invited me to be a part of. And um, that was when we first got to kind of really connect in real life. And since then, I've just been continually blown away by your brilliance and your activism and, you know, just who you are. Um and so really when I wanted to have you on on the episode, it was like, my first question was, what do you want to talk about, Ashley Marie Preston, until we had that live when I learned about the nonprofit industrial complex? I never heard of it until you told me. Yeah. Well, first of all, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, the nonprofit industrial complex is one of those rare discussed topics because a lot of people really don't know what it is. And more importantly, they don't know how it impacts them directly. And so the nonprofit industrial complex, much like the prison industrial complex, is, is an institution that essentially um, markets and monetizes on people's misfortunes. The nonprofit industrial complex describes an institution that monetizes on the misfortunes of the most impoverished in our nation. A lot of people don't know that it is actually estimated at over a trillion dollar active economic opportunity globally, and it's one of the largest economies in the world. And so the nonprofit industrial complex's actual purpose is to add legitimacy to capitalism. So think about it like this. Mm. I carjack you and then I come across you on the street and I offer to buy you an Uber and send you home. Even though I'm the one who carjacked you, I'm going to get you an Uber so that you can definitely know that there's still goodwill that exists in the world. Meanwhile, I'm the one who actually committed the offense. So the nonprofit industrial complex, one of its purposes is to, again, add legitimacy and credibility to these systems that are directly responsible for disenfranchising historically um, marginalized communities. So one thing I heard you say is that it's a global industry. So the idea of a... um of a of a of the industrial of the nonprofit industrial complexes it's an international problem like we have the issue here but it's also not unique to the United States right that's correct not that it makes it okay yeah well just like corporations aren't solely planted in the United States there's business that takes place overseas um a lot of it is about global power and how we uh sustain global power right and so I know that we currently see this under the Trump administration where you see him schmoozing up to all of these dictators all around the world and the Kremlin. And so this administration has actually lent transparency to the idea that power is global and it's not necessarily an American um, uh, institution, but it's global. And so what we also know is that in various countries, there is high surveillance. 
And so the American version of high surveillance, believe it or not, is not always the CIA or the FBI. It's the nonprofit industrial complex because it's meant to derail mass movements. It's meant to keep an eye on what the political thought or social movement is of the day. It's meant to keep tabs on how we're organizing, and it's meant to exhaust the efforts of community activists and leaders. And so basically, my first introduction to the nonprofit industrial complex was when I came off of the streets. Um, I was homeless. I engaged in survival sex work. I was on drugs, all of those things because of the conditions that uh, structural and systemic violence had uh, created for me. And so I was happy that I was one of the ones who didn't go to jail or prison. I was happy that I was one of the Black trans women who weren't murdered. I was happy that I still had a bright future ahead of me. And so I wanted to give back like most people do. And so I started volunteering. And then eventually I ended up um, getting a job at one of the largest LGBTQ organizations um, in uh, LA. And so got the job. And the first thing... (laughs) that I noticed right off the bat was that leadership didn't reflect the demographic we served. So in many cases, I was only one paycheck away from being in the same predicament as the demographic that I served, which means I had no real power as an activist, organizer, community leader to actually shift the social ecology around how we talk about these issues and how we show up for the demographic that we were serving. And so I also had become a union steward at that time because, you know, she's the loudest girl in the room. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm the loudest girl in the room. And so my coworkers are like, yes, like we want her to defend us. We want her. And watching the ways in which they use corporate policy and rules And all of these things that they created to eventually fire me. And the union, believe it or not, did not protect me. And so I think that there's this large conversation that we have to have around the idea that, again, when you're talking about an institution that relies on federal funding, it's important to remember that we can't fix the problem with the problem. And in reality, a lot of these corporations and companies, they create these philanthropic arms, not only as a tax shelter in many cases, but they also do it um, as a means of diverting public monies. So that's the other thing, is that when there's this federal funding that's supposed to go directly to these organizations, they hardly ever fund grassroots organizations, which are the smaller smaller, smaller organizations that maybe only operate under a million dollars. Sometimes they even operate under $500,000, but they're forced to get creative in their solutions to addressing homelessness, to addressing mass incarceration, to addressing food or housing insecurity, to addressing the needs of immigrants and people seeking asylum, refugees, to addressing intimate partner violence, to addressing rape culture, to addressing the uh, gap in educational access, all of those things that continue to keep systems of power pumping and going strong. So if, so whatever it is, whatever you're, you know, the most passionate about that you want to get involved, you want to help. You're one of those people who often you, you realize about something you want to help. And whether it's mass incarceration or it's uh, racial equality or it's police brutality or it's 
housing, education, whatever it is. But it's also the thing is like, I, I think I've been guilty of this is like, you know, something happens, you're like, whether it's an earthquake in Haiti, or whether it's, you know, something here in the United States, you want to donate and then you want to be like, well, you know, I donated honey today, I'll do something again tomorrow. But like my work is air quote done. Well, activism isn't easy. And you're not going to be able to just make a little donation and be like, fixed it. Like I did my part. There's a, there's a, so if you're, if you're going to choose to do your activism from a donation space, which is what I'm kind of learning more is like, what is this capitalism, honey? What's her story? Why, like, what, like, what's this whole deal? It's like, but you know, you, you don't want to accidentally enable a system that is helping to keep people oppressed. And if someone is on some board that's getting paid like, you know, five million a year or six million a year, yet in those very same communities, trans people are dying. We're not getting medication where we need to get medication to. We're not really dealing with stigmas that we really need to be dealing with. And so I'm not saying that there's like malign intent from certain from from organizations, but I'm I guess I'm just saying that like we need to be we need to think more um like as much as you would research the bag, what bag you're gonna buy. How well does that bag hold up? You need to be giving that same scrutiny to like those causes that you're trying to support. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. And I think that the other piece is uh, understanding, just delving into it a little bit deeper, that it's not to say that people who work for nonprofits, the people who dedicate their time and their passion and their research and their efforts to these organizations are necessarily intentionally or um, actively trying to um, uphold capitalism or systems of power. The thing is that many of us don't know how they work because we're only allowed to see past a certain point because there is, you know, behind the veil, you know, up in the C-suite, that's where all the action goes down. And so the thing is that I want to be very clear that this isn't about the, the intention of the people who work uh, within these institutions, this is about the intentions of the federal government. And as I said, nonprofits are typically meant to, um, they're meant to be a part of uh, surveillance and to derail mass movements because there's two different types of groups. So you have um, political society and civil society. So civil society is these institutions and social groups that give you a sense of consent to agreeing to how you function and operate in society. So nonprofit organizations, social groups, campaigns, those are considered um, civil society. And then you have political society, which is the courts, the prison industrial complex, police, you know, law enforcement, uh, legislation, all of those things are political society. Corporations? Well, corporations are a part of um, uh, of uh, civil society because, again, they're kind of like, yay, like we're going to do this amazing thing and we're going to all post this photo and do hashtag, you know, good people united. And then we're going to just like go from there and then yay. So y- y'all can put those picket signs down. You don't have to protest. You don't have to. Let's just do things peacefully. Let's be a, uh, uh, let's go for civility. That's an example. So it's like the toxic relationship between the two is the issue. It's like when. Good cop, bad cop. It's, the in- it's good cop, bad cop. So civil, so, so, so civil society is good cop. Political society is bad cop. 
And the federal government always wants to try to monitor, control, and uh, keep tabs on things from civil because it makes people think that they're uh, that they're doing a good thing, like what you said. Like it makes people it, it satisfies their need. That's what I want to break down. The federal government's like surveillance through these nonprofit industrial complexes mm-hmm. and how those are really meant to like divert inner divert funds and like and subvert. How does that work? Like because what does, they place what does stipulations. Like? They place stipulations on the money. That's what that looks like. So, that, so what's the money mean? So the like, money so, means like, so operations. How does the federal government? So money means operations. Money means your ability to provide uh, uh, health care or benefits. Um, the money um, is how you pay your workers. In many uh, uh, cases, it's how you have a CEO that makes over $725,000 a year. I'll let y'all Google that and catch that shade. There is, you know, there are folks out here again who are misappropriating funds um, and not really putting those resources and monies where they belong the most. And so what the government does is by placing stipulations and regulations on federal funding, you then have to meet these requirements. And those requirements are set up in a way that prevent you from really being able to um, do anything out from under their purview. So you can't, um, like prime example even, the people who have these jobs, basically they're often required to go to school to learn nonprofit management. So basically the professionalization of the nonprofit industrial complex is really training nonprofits how to run as capitalist machines or or machines of capitalism. And that's the piece that people aren't thinking about. And so many times the people who've directly in, who've directly experienced those forms of oppression, they don't even qualify to do the work, although they're the ones who are directly coming up with the solutions. And so going back to what I was saying about not really being brought into positions of leadership, but being kept on the front lines in these low-paying, low-wage positions where you're wearing three and four hats, um, it's meant to exhaust your energy and bandwidth and resources so that on the bigger picture, they can still continue to do the things that they've always been doing. And so there's a book that I, I, I recommend people reading, and it's called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And they break down all of these different layers of what it means to um, control movements through funding, what it means to um, encourage uh, private foundations where they can divest uh, public monies into these um, entities that pretty much create their own stipulations independent of the federal government even, and also kind of breaking down the importance of grassroots. So I actually launched a nonprofit organization not long ago called You Are Essential back in March when the COVID uh, pandemic kicked off. And the reason why I launched that nonprofit organization, but grassroots nonprofit organization, is because I realized that the, the most vulnerable people are doing the most vulnerable work. So it's not these large corporations that function, um, you know, like companies, these big companies 
It's actually these community collectives. And the issue is not that they don't have the solutions or that they're not doing the work. The issue is that they don't have the funding and that the donors who can really make a difference in these movements will never see their faces, will never hear their names, would not begin to even know where to look at because that's what was intended. And so my job as someone who has a platform, as someone who's in media and entertainment and has very influential friends and thinking about like, how can I divert that attention and that focus and those monies? How can we get it in the hands of the people who are truly um, inspired and empowered by the mission and they're out here changing the world? And so... I have like... 75,000 questions about everything that you said. I want to hear so much more about You Are Essential because I'm obsessed with it. We're going to take a really quick break and then we'll be right back with more Ashley Marie Preston after this. Getting Curious has been recording remotely during the pandemic. Sometimes that's reflected in the audio quality. That's the case with the next 20 minutes or so of this interview. What Ashley Marie is saying is really important, though, so we'd encourage you to listen through the next segment. The audio quality switches back after the second ad break. So welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. Uh, We have Ashley Marie Preston. I was just writing down as you were telling us uh, some of the things that I wanted to ask about. Um, So one thing that I'm... So divest public money. That divest means take money out of, honey. We're trying to divest from the police right now. But but the words that came after, I didn't like as much as divest from the police because divest public money isn't what, you know, you think is what would be attached to, you know, a, non, a, a nonprofit organization that's trying to help people. So one thing that I am curious about is, you know, we uh, like for our lives, like we had Bush two for a while, then we had Obama. Now, obviously, we have 45. So what when you say that, like, it's trying to divest public money, divesting. Uh, so what are some of the stipulations that like the federal government would put on uh, a nonprofit organization in order for them to get these grants and get these federal monies? Well, one is, like I said, um, uh, weaponizing academia to basically, we know that black and brown folks, especially from poor class communities, don't have access to uh, higher learning at the same rates as um, others do. And so by requiring that you have a master's or like a bachelor's degree or all of these stipulations that they put in place, it means that they are sustaining this chasm between privilege and the impoverished. And so in that sense, even, they're speaking two different languages. Like even people who have really good intentions and they really want to do good things in the world, they're still coming from this myopic place that can't see the full depth of what it's like to be a person of color, of what it's like to be someone who's been homeless, of what it's like. Most of the people who are in these executive positions have never had these experiences. And so in a sense, these are the same people that will call for stability, that will shun protests, that will say that, you know, there's a better way to do a JVN. Like you don't have to resort to this. So essentially they're agents of capitalism. And I have to, again, tie it back to capitalism because they are by professionalizing the nonprofit sector. What you're doing is trying to get it to operate 
the same way companies are basically people who are bought and paid for. And so by incentivizing nonprofits, even the idea of mandated reporters, you know, for those who don't know what mandated reporter is, for people who are a nonprofit, when they hire us, we have to sign this document saying that if we feel that someone is a danger or like a harm to themselves or, you know, we have to call the authorities and, and call uh, the institution. And, and it's not to say that there shouldn't be intervention, right? What it is is that the intervener or those who are intervening are the actual systems that created the conditions. And it's meant to specifically single out and target black and brown families. Um, poor families, immigrant families. Um, it's meant to break those families apart. Kids are caught up in the system. It's all of these things are a part of maintaining power. A good way that I can think of it that I learned from Alexis McGill-Johnson, who is now the president of Planned Parenthood, but she was explaining it to me as like, so like Title 10 was a grant that the federal government had it's literally been given to Planned Parenthood in a non in a bipartisan, nonpartisan way for like 50 plus years. And Title 10 money is actually money that I used to get HIV tested back in like 2012 in Missouri, because one of the only places where you can get an STI STD test in St. Louis, like was at the Planned Parenthood. And yearly, this Title 10 um or maybe it's called the, the, no, it's Title 10. This Title 10 granted all this money for Planned Parenthood to be able to give STI testing, abortion services. And basically the Trump administration said to Planned Parenthood, if you mention the word abortion, if you mention the word trans, if you mention the word LGBTQ stuff, you won't be eligible for this money. And so Planned Parenthood was basically like, we have to be able to advise on abortion. We have to be able to advise on trans stuff, have to be able to advise on HIV stuff. So we don't want your money. So they basically were forced to turn to being public, publicly funded. But that was like that type, that program alone gave 700,000 HIV tests a year. And to me, like, I mean, and that, and that's not even enough. Like that's not close to enough to like get ahead of the HIV epidemic that we're in because we still have a testing issue, but to lose that much at the hands of like, so that's just like one example, but that, is, and that's just one organization and, and, you know, and, and, and no one's perfect. And I think that so many people are trying to do their best. But I think that that is such a good, or just such an important thing. It's like, so in your experience of, of being in, just knowing about this world, have you seen any, uh, nonprofits that are like bigger ones, like do it right? Like where you've seen, where they've heard that criticism and been like, you know what, we do need to have more people in leadership. We do need to have more people in the board. Like how can we be more reflective? And I guess also my question is if someone does want to get involved, uh, how can they vet institutions better so that they're not just clicking and being like, okay, well, I did it. I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's like, and then also, one more question. I'm so sorry, but I want you to talk about me. So my other question is this, is like, I worked with um, the RSPCA in Australia um, when I was there earlier this year over the wildfires. And there was a lot of like, and they have this business model of like, you know, for however many donations they get, I think it's like they just 10% of it goes to their budget, which is like paying their staff, keeping the lights on, making copies, running this there, doing this thing, like buying the cages for the things and do it like it's like because RSPCA is for like the animals. It's like the it's like the animal. It's kind of like our ASPCA, I think. But like the, uh, I, there was a lot of feedback that was like, you know, they're like because if you take in 10 million dollars all of a sudden because of wildfires, but you normally take in like 
a hundred thousand, right? That the salary for those people where that's going all of a sudden, like, so that kind of, it's, it's a kind of what I feel like it's a little bit of what you're saying is like, all of a sudden those people got like a huge increase in their pay off of this huge natural disaster. And as some of these people are already like curjillionaires for running this and, but see, I also think that that's kind of like more nuanced and it's Australia. Cause like, I guess I'm just saying like, doesn't it cost money to run a thing but if so, like, but there, then should there be a rule where it's like all of a sudden, if if your donation spiked to like twenty billion dollars or twenty million dollars, there was some disaster. Like, should there be like a cap on salaries? Like, what, like, I think that's all my questions. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know where to start with, but, but um, I'll say this: poverty pays, just not the people who are directly impacted by it. And so I think that there. There was even a research done recently that showed that philanthropy, for every $100 of philanthropy money, only three cents is going to the LGBTQ community. And of those three cents, 0.02 or something like that goes to the trans community. Okay? So that just shows you how there's even biases, these systems of sexism, racism, you know, transphobia, xenophobia, all of those things, they still exist even in the nonprofit sector. And so I think that in addition to making money off of people's misfortunes, the goal of the nonprofit industrial complex, again, is to be the government's eyes, which is why the minute Planned Parenthood went rogue and said, no, what do you mean? We're actually here to talk about HIV. We're here to talk about you know, trans identity and to talk about uh, reproductive rights and to talk about, they reminded them really fast of who they were. And so there definitely is expenses associated with this. But the truth is that, again, grassroots organizations with well under a million dollars, even under 500,000, have made more impact than these multi-million dollar organizations have. They, they can see more impact in a year than some of them have seen in 10 years. And it's because, think about it, what would happen if we actually solved the housing crisis for nonprofits? What would that mean for them? What would that mean if we were able to get everybody fed and get everyone insured? And what would it mean if people had access to, you know, um, a competent uh, mental health services? And what would it mean if these communities weren't caught up in the throes of the prison industrial complex? And what would it mean if we were doing community accountability? And what would it, they wouldn't be able to keep their lights on. What do you think they're gonna do? Go open up a Kundalini yoga retreat somewhere like in the desert? No, there's, it's a system and it's a system that's meant to consistently market and monetize people's misfortune. Like I have to keep saying that over and over because a lot of people really think, but you asked another question somewhere in there that was around. So like, what do you do? So how do you know? And every single time, listen to these movements on the ground. Listen to the Black Lives Matter organizations. Listen to, um, um, you know, organizations that that work directly with refugees and that work directly um with immigrants and that work directly um, trans-led organizations or organizations that basically 
you would have to go past the first two pages of your Google search. Those are the people you want to look at because those are the ones who are not only directly part of those communities who are impacted by those uh, disproportionate realities, but they're also the communities that aren't owned by the government. Their voices aren't owned. And so, um, and in fact, we know that when these communities exist, now the Trump administration is classifying them as terrorist organizations. Now they're coming up with new language like Antifa and all of this other stuff, you know, so that they can play into the fear of these donors, because now donors and people who want to be, and volunteers, right, because you don't have to have money to make a difference, I mean, trust me. Like, I started out not having money, but just being like, I got hands and feet, where y'all need me at. I got ears, who you need me to listen to, who do I have a mouth, who do you need me to call, who do you, those are the ways that you do that. But these social movements are so crucial to the societal advancement that we're trying to achieve right now because they are doing more groundwork that the government cannot derail and they can't monitor it. And so these organizations that are being classified as terrorist groups and all of that, that's intentional because they know that these privileged folks who maybe came from an Ivy League university, maybe they've only lived in that same community uh, in Connecticut for the last 10 years, or maybe they they don't have access and it taps into their own internal biases that they even have around these communities. Like there's this part that's like, I really want to help people. But deep down, helping us also means interrogating your own, your own internalized racism. It means in, in, interrogating your own transphobia, your own um, classism and elitism and those thoughts that you have about why people are homeless and why they need help. Um, and once you start looking at these systems and the ways that these systems have been directly um, responsible for creating those conditions, then you understand that the people who are advising you are not your friend. The people who are handling your money are not your friend. These are people who are protecting the assets and the interests of the government which is essentially even what capitalism, law enforcement, police brutality is all about. Capitalism is an extension uh, of slavery and exploitation. And those people who made a killing off of exploiting black bodies and, you know, and, and made all this money drenched in indigenous blood, they became corporations. Those corporations influenced politics. Those politics, um, you know, put leaders in office who then, you know, pop out all this legislation and all these rules and all of this stuff that's done um, in the shadows and um, in the dead of the night, you know what I mean? All of that is connected. So just understanding that the nonprofit industrial complex is this symbiotic way of <clears throat> tying in government and politics and social movements and corporations like it's all connected and they are independent of one another so i think what's you know so important for people listening this listening to this is to really realize that like these issues none of them are easy and none of them are like they're just not easy and so you know one of the questions i asked is like well how do you vet 
an organization? Like, how do you see if this organization is worth your time? Is it worth your money? Um, and it's like, you know, I heard you say that one bit about like, you're going to have to go a little bit farther than the Google pages. Like one organization I found through Instagram that I like is called Border Angels. And they're people who, like, I think they have like 30,000 followers on Instagram, but they're like out every single day, like giving water to people. Like, and they'll like, they will do these press releases on their Instagram where like, if someone in their echelon, like they find out was like up to something, they'll be like, they don't work here anymore. And this is why, but it's like grassroots and community. It can be messy. It can be difficult. It can, and, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that, you know, not to do it. There are good people that there are people in there that are, there are, you are essential orgs. There are people that are like you and that are making their own thing and are, and even if they aren't making their own thing, I mean, I know there's, I won't say the company right here because I don't want to put them on blast, but there was this company that came to me last year for this, um, LGBTQ like diversity hair campaign. And it was for pride of this year. And I was like, first of all, the environmental impact of this company is like on a whole other level. And like, there's no amount of money that can make me put my name on this. Second of all, if you're going to make this about LGBTQ inclusivity, I'm not the one to be on the face of this. This needs to be like seven, eight, nine people. And we need to have trans people. We need to have black people. We need to have BIPOC people. Like it's not me. Like I'm not the face of this. And it was a really hard fat chunk of change to turn down because it was, but it was the right thing to do because it, I, I wasn't going to be the tokenized person. Like, oh, when you buy this company, like you're really making a good decision. I guess I'm just saying that there, everyone needs to like take up space where they are as far as like putting pressure on the right, putting pressure where they can, saying no to people where they shouldn't and just doing the work, going the extra mile to take responsibility for like, where does my money go? Like I want to give to people that are, making the right choices and are making difficult choices. And to me, I think Planned Parenthood, that's a big organization. I I, I don't know what its tax classification is, but to me, I feel like they were like... That's the reason why when people ask the question of like which organizations, you always see like a hesitancy within me because even though this group, this president, this CEO, this whomever is in that seat, of whatever organization, that doesn't mean that that's going to be the same thing come this time next year. Or come. So that's what happens, is that you will have these movements that start out as one thing, or these organizations that start out as one thing, and then they become something else, but because they've already been branded with legitimate um, you know, uh, sentiment, then that's how the government works their way back in, or that's how you know, capitalist individuals, you know, like that's how it happens. And so if you are essential, I don't ever plan on making this like a large organization, all of these offices all across the country and all of this. It's like, no, my sole purpose and mission is to raise the money and to build cross-cultural collaboration that yields power for historically disenfranchised communities um, and funding all of it. Because the thing is, we need people that are just focusing on the dollars. Everybody's focusing on the service and the needs. You even have people duplicating services because it's almost like this weird um, version of like, kind of like American Idol, but like nonprofit edition or something where it's like, 
we're all coming with similar talents and in some instances the same exact talents, but who does it better? And it's like, what would it look like if we just said, okay, we know that you got the dance moves, so y'all go ahead and tap dance away. We know that you got the vocals, you know, giving us Mariah, giving us, so y'all go ahead and sing that note in this way. And then you, but we don't do that because again, federal funding, part of the, one of the features of the nonprofit industrial complex is to uh, ignite this scarcity complex within these organizations so that they start competing with one another for these scraps, for breadcrumbs. And so that's how, that's another way in which they disrupt these movements is that they pit organizations against one another. That's my thought on it is as far as you are essential goes, we always want to be grassroots because of the simple fact that it's when you start becoming bigger and trying to model yourself after these organizations or after these, um, again, capitalistic structures of power, that's when you go wrong. So to the person who's watching, who's like, I really like, how do I know? You will always know when you follow the trail back to community. What are activists saying who don't work for these systems? That was one of the reasons why like, I left. My following that I have, my fan base, my followers, my voice in public space, the reason why it's so revered is because I'm not bought and paid for it. Like, I've also had to turn away fat chunks of money on months where I didn't even know how I was going to pay my rent. But I knew that the value in being able to look myself in the face at night and feel good about what the person I am before I go to bed or when I wake up in the morning, you can't put a price to that. And so that is the reason why it's important to not only listen to, but support and fund these activists because most of your local activists and organizers, they're not getting what they need a lot of times. They're barely able to survive and sustain themselves. You know, even media. I've had people be like, oh yeah, like you're, I am nowhere near a millionaire. And it is because, you know, if I would have kneeled down and kissed the ring of capitalism and corporate interest and government influence, I would have been a long uh, way away from here by now. But when you actually adhere to your values and your principle, and when you continue to, to, to listen to the community, I am a public servant. Activists, organizers, community leaders, we are public servants. And so the thing is that um, that idea of what support looks like is always going to evolve just as much as the communities that we live in continue to evolve. And so, again, if you see, um, you know, an organization saying like, oh, yes, we're like about this, but then you hear the activists saying, nope, they're doing this, you need to listen to the little people. You need to listen to the, to, to the Davids in these conversations, not the Goliaths. You need to actually support, uplift, um, and empower, you know, these people who are putting their bodies on the line, their safety on the line, because let's be very clear, we've seen this taking it, uh, zooming out and going global. We've seen in countries like Brazil, where they've assassinated uh, activists and they've like killed people. They do it in Mexico. They do it in Russia. They, they are, let me be very clear, killing people. We're still having Black men lynched. In 2020, literally hanging from trees, hanging from flag, uh, flagpoles, 
You can Google this. And then they're ruling it suicide. There is no way. They're literally assassinating people. And so, again, if you want to make the most social impact, take your money and your volunteer hours and your time and your attention and your microphone and your platform and go speak to the people that are coming up with the solutions directly themselves. Because they are the people that didn't have to go through Uncle Sam to access their sense of duty in liberating themselves and those who share their lived experiences. Okay, so we're going to, yes, we're going to take a really quick break and then we're going to be right back with more Ashley Marie Preston after this. So, you know, it's like, I don't want people to think of like, like, Capitalism without rules is theft. That's what Elizabeth Warren has said. And because the capitalistic nature of this country was built on the backs of literal fucking slaves and the acres and a mule thing that was like the promise, like didn't happen for most people. And it was never economically feasible because all the Southern states like went on to penalize like reading and voting and like vagrancy, which was like a way that they could throw former slaves into jail for not having a job. But then like applying for jobs was also illegal. So basically like slavery as we knew it back in the day, it just got, it just, it, it never totally shifted because of the 13th amendment. There's never been reparations and the, the systems of oppression that capitalism instituted on the part of slavery those are everywhere still. And so I guess to me, it's like, how do we exist? Like, is, are we pushing for reparations? Are we like, we are, well, how can capitalism ever be in a place where it's like not evil or is it, or are we it's, advocating for more of like a socialism or something? Well, it's one of those things where again, who are you allowing to lead the conversation? Who are you paying to lead that conversation? And who are you trusting to keep the dialogue honest. And I think that that's the question. It's the same questions that we're asking in the political sphere, right? Like with these elected officials. I, and this, you know, election, it was really interesting because the white woman from Oklahoma was the one that I thought actually understood intersectionality and had policies in place or uh, uh, policy ideas that would have been a form of reparations that would have given us that extra support that we needed to thrive economically, socially, and heal some of those uh, wounds that this country has continued to inflict generation after generation. And so I think that, again, you know, and we're both in these spaces where I'm not saying all corporations are bad. I'm not saying that everyone is meant to, I'm saying the ideology, the concept, the overarching idea of their existence is bad. And so until we're able to get in there and talk about these things and for them to actually, um, again, think about how they're going to, you know, take accountability for the harm that they've done to communities, we're wasting our time. And the nonprofit industrial complex is a way of placing a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. The thing is that it's never truly been about eradicating homelessness and hunger and, you know, um, uh, economic strife through the inability to gain employment and all of those things. 
it's been to kind of just fix a little bit of it just so we're posturing as if we're participating in progress, but really we're helping sustain systems of power. And so the thing that I really, again, want to emphasize is that it's not about the intention of those who are a part of these institutions. I don't blame even some of my friends, like my personal friends that I love and adore. I know that they work for these institutions. I don't blame them for that. But I challenge them that when you are in the room and when you are in a position where you can direct the conversation and you can set the agenda, push back. Because, and know that in pushing back, it may mean that your security may be on the line. It may mean that you um, rub people the wrong way. It may mean, but then at that point, if that's a deterrent for you, then you need to interrogate the ways in which you've been complicit. You need to interrogate what you're really doing there in those spaces, you know? Because I get it, even when I see other trans people in those spaces, like, I get it. Like, I was literally only one paycheck away from being in the same demographic as, or in the same predicament as the demographic that I serve. So I understand how that goes down. But the thing is that, again, there are so many groups and uh, social movements, mutual aid networks. That's one thing that we have to talk about because many people don't know that the government has never done what they were supposed to do. All this tax money, all of this, the, the government, in fact, if the government were truly doing what they were entrusted to do for these communities all across the country, we wouldn't even need nonprofit organizations. These organizations um, or service nonprofits are there doing jobs that the government is supposed to do and isn't. Um, And so, but mutual aid networks have always been around. It's this idea that we're collecting all the resources we can we're pulling together, we're taking something from this pool, we're also putting something back in the pool. So it's this way of like building cross-cultural collaboration and power that continues to um, liberate those who have been starved of all of these resources. And so mutual aid networks, most of the time, literally nine times out of 10, these people don't even have a 501c3 status. Because even those statuses, they come with fees, like they come with yearly fees, they come with, you know, all of these, again, you have to be able to do reports and account for this and explain this. And so all you're doing is you're telling the federal government what's going on, who's coming for their wig, what time they should get there, you know, what they'll be wearing. We're literally trying to, um, it's, 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 it's wild. It's almost like those horror movies, like those scary movies where like people keep getting murdered and it's like Courtney Cox and the cop and they're like running around trying to figure out who it is. And all of a sudden then in the movie, he found out that the actual person that was the sidekick helping look for the killer was the killer. That's what's happening. So is it best that people try not to like, so here's like a, 
like something I was thinking about as you were explaining that. It's like, so remember how on our Instagram live, you taught me about like, don't be a self Karen, which to this day, I think is still one of the best <laughs> things I've ever heard. So let's say that like someone is like, they've been doing their research. Let's say this is someone who's like come from privilege, but like, they're one of those people who we, who like, you can be like, I really do want to do the best. Like, mm, but like, I, I don't want to make fun of them, but like, that's me. That's been me before. Like that's people who I know that have like been like me. So people that are trying to do their, their work and they really are like not taking five minutes on it, but they like, you know, been doing research, trying to figure out how they can like dismantle their part and their complicity over the years, mm-hmm. is there like a checklist that anyone listening to this in your experience, in your life experience, mm-hmm. a checklist that someone should ask themselves before like j- joining on to any sort of organization or give, give, whether it's giving their money or their time? Like, what would be like your checklist? Like, is it a 5013? Are they grassroots? Are they new? Mm-hmm. Are they old? Like, what would your checklist be? The checklist would typically be um, how much money do they have to operate with? Like, what does their annual budget look like? And of that annual budget, assess how much is going to to, to executive salaries. Um, measure the impact and follow the dollars. I, I talked about this before in another one of our live streams that um, the nonprofit industrial complex has a tendency to appropriate the oppression and struggles of Black trans women and those who are at the bottom of the societal totem pole for donor dollars that we never see. And then they tuck us away in their sock drawer when they're done and save us for next, you know, uh, fiscal season or fiscal year. That's, it happens so much. And so really hold their feet to the fire about which research and upon your findings, hold their feet to the fire about who they're advocating for. Because nine times out of 10, we're still at the back of the line while other people are cutting for seconds and thirds. And I think that, again, it's always going to be trusting the community and looking at what are Black folks saying about this organization? Not the ones who are a part of class solidarity, because that's another whole conversation. Zora Neale Hurston said it best, all skin folk ain't kin folk. So just because there's a Black face there or a Black friend there, this does not mean that that person necessarily has our best interest in mind. Because I even talked about this before. Um, I think it was either with Colton Haynes or uh, Brandon Flynn when I was talking about the definition of what it means to be a beneficiary of genocide and slavery. And I was saying that a beneficiary of genocide and slavery isn't necessarily always a, a white person. It's anybody who gets to lick up the crumbs that fall from white supremacy's table in exchange for their cooperation. And so you have a lot of folks out here who are puppets to the propaganda and being mindful of it's not just about having a black face in the room or a trans person there or but what's that person's story? How is that person tied into the direct community who would benefit from said impact? And also, um, again, asking questions about how we can simplify it, because I know that some of these organizations um, who operate under the nonprofit industrial complex inflate their need Mm. so that they can pull more money to then justify these large salaries. 
um, over $725,000. Oh, because they're like, well, gosh, I've got all these people I've got to take care people. of. So, like, of course I of course I earn all this money because it's we got all these people I to run take an care organization of. of uh, I run an organization of over 3,000 people. I need this. But in reality, you could have did that with 300 people. And you could have did it with a portion of the hours. And you could have did it giving them a higher salary and still have more than enough left over. So it's, again, capitalistic greed. When you try to train a nonprofit organization to function as a corporation, you're going to get the same capitalistic greed and corporate interest driving the agenda as you would expect. Which kind of reminds me of fucking what Andrew Yang said about fucking 45 about how like it's so stupid to come into government saying that you're going to run this government as a business because we've already seen what running shit like a business does it like it, it's that's the whole capitalistic thing that's the whole like and then that's so and the people who are trying to survive the people who are trying to survive and the people who are really like i mean their heart it's not about their heart being in it their life is on the line You know what I mean? Those are the people you should listen to. The people who have been discounted and excluded and censored and silenced, those are the people. It's that little voice. You know, we talk about the voice of reason and consciousness, and often people refer to it as that nagging, tiny little voice. Those tiny voices are loud when you're actually on the ground. But in many cases, the people who have the privilege and resources to make a difference, they aren't that close to the ground and no one's fighting them for that. But it's about, again, taking the initiative to go past the first several pages of your Google search. It is about actually going on social media, following specific activists who like, I love, you know, people like Sonia Renee Taylor and I love you know, India Moore, and I love Angelica Ross, and I love, um, you know, Kimberly Drew, and I love um, just uh, Erica Hart, and I love, like, all of these, there are some of these voices, you know what I mean? I love just um, uh, Frederick Joseph, my friend Fred, you know, there are so many amazing people who are doing this work, and they're speaking truth to power, And there's absolutely nothing in it for them. Even my organization, You Are Essential, that I've been running since um, March with, I have to name this, Revolve Impact. Please check them out. Social Impact Agency. They have been my key partner and supporter. I would have not been able to run You Are Essential, not whatsoever, had it not been for Revolve Impact, Mike De La Rocha, um, uh, Claudia Torres, um, Aria and um, Afton and the whole region. That's how we were able to donate. That's how we were able to donate our fit on yes, fundraiser I have Instagram a Live. Sponsor. I have a fiscal sponsor. I get zero dollars for running that. And the reason, and, and eventually we will get grant, uh, uh, get grants from donors personally, not from the federal government. But the point is that that's because that's what passion and purpose is about. It should be informed by the need to shift the social ecology around these issues in a way that liberates folks, not lines our pockets. 
And there were so many people that told me like, girl, take some of that donation money for you. Like you have to, and let's be clear, white people have been doing that forever. Like in a lot of these orgs and no one bats an eyelash. But again, I felt that it was important to give 100% of the proceeds to these organizations, these grassroots organizations all across the country, because these are the people that are going to take us to that place that we've been fighting for generation after generation after generation. And the government's main, their largest tool and weapon to derail those movements is the nonprofit industrial complex because it drowns out the voices of those who are on the ground doing the work firsthand, that are putting their bodies and their safety and their lives on the line. So are the, are this, are grassroots um, organizations or, or- yeah, are the grassroots organizations, are those not 501? They are. Three. They are. But the thing is, they end up closing down. They end up closing down. Even when we talk about Marsha P. Johnson and, and Sylvia Rivera, for those who are, you know, tuned in to LGBTQ history, they were the mothers of the movement of queer liberation. Their organization, STAR, it didn't even last but for a year, if even, and they had to close it down because they didn't have enough resources and support. And so that's what the government does. It creates all these rules and stipulations and regulations and policies. And so if it can't get you to sell out and take crumbs so that you can still stay alive, then it will come at you with all these regulations and uh, red tape and all of this uh, bureaucracy so that it can prevent you from making change. And so it is up to donors, um, communities, um, you know, volunteers, all of those people, please support your local grassroots organizations. That's why we're so excited with You Are Essential to be partnering with them for these social impact campaigns because Revolve Impact and their relationships with a lot of public figures, athletes, celebrities, my personal relationships, we're trying to use other people's platforms such as yourself, you know, to be able to really pass the mic to the people who have something to say, who really should be talking. And those are the people, again, who are on the ground, in the trenches, doing the work. We don't need any more celebrities centering themselves, fronting, you know, performing like, oh, I'm so, and it's like, okay, that's cute and everything, but you don't really have a horse in this race. Because let's be real, when all this is said and done, you know, you're blonde and rich and white and beautiful and all of these things. And, you know, even watching celebrities sometimes be rewarded for saying the same shit that people who've been saying it and saying it with scars and wounds and bleeding from their head have been saying, and they're punished and demonized and scrutinized for it. So why is it that, you know, a beautiful blonde white woman who's famous and rich can get up and say something, can, can, can get up and speak to our reality. And then when one of us says it, no one cares, no one pays attention. And so the thing is that we even see the ways in which celebrity culture and media promotes the model over the message. We have to stop promoting the model over the message. We have to stop playing house and actually clean house. We have to get to a place where we again center the voices of the people who are out there 
every single day. And so the job of the federal government is to quash and shut down any attempt. You know what I mean? They will shut, and this is not a game. Like some people, they're like, oh, conspiracies. It's not a conspiracy, honey. If you do the work, if you check the Carfax, sweetie, you will see that they've been doing this generation after generation after generation since we stepped off of the plantation. They've been doing it and it's never stopped and it's been consistent and it's been rampant and it's been so successful that it's poisoned the earth. It's killing the earth, literally. There, uh, th- this pandemic, COVID-19, that's not a coincidence. That is a direct result of the consistent abuse and exploitation and disrespect of life in all forms, flora and fauna. I'm just shaking my head so hard. I mean, yeah. I just, I look at the people, I'm in Texas right now, and I look at the amount of people that... Um, follow the lead of 45 and are just not wearing masks. Like it's, you're really literally, you know what else I think is it not to get on a soapbox that I just really quickly with HIV, they were so quick to make laws to throw folks with (sighs) HIV in fucking jail so fast. Like by the, by the early nineties, if you didn't disclose your HIV status, even potentially you're going to jail. Yeah. We have Karen's running around coughing and people's faces that could give them a fucking virus that we know less about than HIV could fucking kill them. And these people, you can't even, we don't want to hurt well-intentioned people and put them in jail. Yet people, when it was, when it was sex workers, because of the stigma. Almost sex workers. A lot of my friends who were HIV positive and they were sex workers, they were telling me that when they got arrested, they actually test them. So sex workers, they test them when they book them so that they can stack on charges on top of their crimes of survival. So these are the things that, again, when we talk about the system, the prison industrial complex, the nonprofit industrial complex, all of these systems, the goal is to demonize, criminalize, and try Black and brown people in a way that fragments their families, their communities, and prevents them from accessing power. It's to widen the chasm, like between these uh, these power dynamics. Like it's to widen the distance, you know. So we're not socially distancing yes. physically like we're supposed to, but believe me, power is definitely distancing. <laughs> yeah, and that's but that's the other thing too. You were explaining how like white supremacy will eat its own young because white white people befall this same white supremacist narrative about the crumbs it'll do it to white people too it just happens to black and brown people more fat phobia ableism homophobia all of that was designed to oppress other white people and then they just added it onto our our tab for being black and brown on top of it and women White supremacy will gobble you alive if you betray it. Elizabeth Warren betrayed white supremacy when she started talking about the systems of power and institutions that were directly oppressing uh, Black people, Black women, Black trans folks, immigrants, all of these communities who don't fall within the lines of societal respectability. The minute you use that privilege to try to um, bring these people up, 
that's when it's a problem. And so the thing is that the most brilliant thing they could have ever did was sacrifice their own because it is always poor white people that are the henchmen of white supremacy. It is the, just like even sometimes gay men, gay white men have allowed themselves to be the henchmen of white supremacy because what they have done is inflict pain. Like it's almost like walking up to someone in a store and just like slapping them in the back of the head and then you turn around and then it's the the black or brown person or the trans person standing there and they swing at us. When in reality, we're not the ones who took the shot. It was your own. You know what I mean? And so that is how white supremacy operates is it has us here. It uses poor white people, poor gay people, poor, you know, uh, uh, disabled white people, white women. It will use all of those. It will create those layers of oppression solely so that it can use them as a smokescreen and a weapon of gas and a tool of gaslighting to discredit that it's race-based. And so when reality, it's about the 1%. White supremacy was happening in, in, in countries where it was only white people. <laughs> you know, even the, the, the settlers, they came from, some of them, interestingly enough, were the ones who were oppressed or criminals or over there, over in England and, and over, and they came here and enacted the same systems the of same supremacy shit. that they had experienced over there. In fact, yeah. there's even accounts of indigenous people talking about how bad they smelled, talking about how much disease they brought over here, how much, which is so hilarious because we use that language and those descriptors to dehumanize and, um, and you know, shut out the humanity of homeless people and all this. But white people were that when they came here to this land. You know what I mean? And so... Yeah. So, yes. And that also kind of reminds me of, like, when people have survived an abuse, they, like... it, Like, I mean, this is a weird... Well, I'll just say it. In the salon, like, a lot of times assistants get abused. You get paid $6 an hour while your boss is getting, you know, $750,000 an hour. Like, you're literally the one doing the work, like, helping them maintain three and four clients at a time. Mm -hmm. And then they're going home with these checks, and you're like... I don't have any. And then, but then when the assistant works their way out of that, and then the assistant gets in that position, they will turn around and they start paying these people the same, and they start abusing them the same way. And that was always my thing. When I got on the floor, I was like, I'm never going to do this to my assistants. Like they are going to get paid well. They're going to get benefits. They're going to get time off. I'm going to pay for their education. Like I'm like not going to do to them. And I think that is kind of, I said something in my book about like, I really do think it's part of like the human experience to try to figure out like how do i not replicate this abuse that i went through because there's this thing in our heads that makes we classify it as paying my dues i had to pay my dues Mm. so now you have to pay your dues and really what that is is it's this unsettling realization that many of us don't want to truly dismantle white supremacy we want to access the benefits of it and so there's an author, you have to read her. Her name is Bell Hooks. And Bell Hooks is <laughs> that one, but she often talks about the role that Black men, uh, cis-hetero Black men and, and, and white women in America, uh, white cisgender women have played and um, helping maintain white supremacy in that 
those are the only two identities that only have one layer of identity separating them from full patriarchal power. So if it weren't for the fact that you were, um, that you were black, you would be a cis hetero white man in America. If it wasn't for the fact that you were a woman, you would be a, um, a cis hetero woman. You would be a hetero white man in America. And so everybody else, once you start breaking down, like the fact that if I wasn't trans, I would still be black. You know what I mean? If and, yeah. and, and so that's how that works. Black trans women are the last link to full liberation. We are the piece. We are the cog, the thing that keeps the, and people haven't realized it yet because we our identities overlap with multiple marginalized groups that are experiencing similar um, exploitation and oppression. And so if you can actually figure out how to advocate for and support the most vulnerable among us, everyone else will benefit from it. And so the thing that, again, we have to remember when we're talking about white supremacy is that it is literally about protecting the interests of the top 1%. And even when we think about billionaire class, think about what kind of blood you have to help spill to be not just a billionaire, a multi-billionaire. What kind of exploitation, what kind of corruption, what kind of uh, looking away or turning your eyes away or what kind of, you have to, sell a piece of yourself. That comes with a cost. No one can make me believe that you can be a multi-billionaire and not be complicit. That you're not in the rooms and with I, the Jeffrey, uh, the Jeffrey uh, Epsteins and the Harvey Weinsteins and the, those are your Judies. Those are their sisters. Like those are their, like you can't tell me, you know? And so again, going back to the nonprofit industrial complex and how we remedy um, the co-optation of social movements via nonprofit, because that's what's happening, is that the actual people on the ground who are doing these strategic movements, they're being classified as terrorist groups. They're being um, unable to, to keep their doors open or their lights on or, or, or even put food on their own tables at home because they're completely married to this work. While these organizations, the nonprofit industrial complex will take bits and pieces of the truth, water it down, you know, sanitize it, scrub it, you know, and then present it in a way that's palatable to the masses in a way that strokes their ego and their sense of like, I did a good thing, you know, instead of realizing that when you're really doing the work, it initially doesn't feel good. It feels messy because it interrogates the deepest parts of ourselves and the ways in which we've been complicit consciously and subconsciously. It requires us to um, ask ourselves, how much are we willing to put on the line? Because when you start fucking with power, let's be very clear, there is backlash. And it may not be immediate and it may not, but here's the gag. Here's the key key behind it. The people who get the backlash are people like me. Nine times out of 10, 
wealthy people, white people, all of these, you will never experience. Why do you think we always tell white allies and supporters, like when you want to support black and brown folks, show up to these protests and stand, get in the way between them and law enforcement? Because we've seen videos that have proven that they won't attack a white person who's standing in between a member of law enforcement and a black person. They won't attack them the ways that they'll attack us. They won't pull their guns and shoot the way that they will shoot us. They won't pull out their stick and beat us the way that they will beat them. And so I think that, again, it's really asking yourself, how much are you willing to put on the line for liberation? How much are you willing to give up that part of your privilege that cushions you and protects you and siphons you off away from the experiences of historically disenfranchised folks? And when you ask yourself that question, it is going to yield a truth that is so uncomfortable. It's going to be visceral. It's going to be painful. And that is why we tell you up front that it is so important that you divorce yourself from these notions of what it means to be a good person. Because when you are able to identify the fact that it's not about your personhood and your intentions, but about the system that you were born into, you don't take it personal, but you make it your personal mission to disrupt it. I honestly can't, there's no better mic drop than that <laughs> for, to I mean, I really don't think there is, unless there's anything else that you want to say. I mean, I feel like that's the, literally the most important, especially for folks that are newer to this fight, listening to this conversation. I think that's the most important thing to end, to end on, because I think people are so fucking afraid of thinking that they're a bad person that they just don't even have the conversation. And so there's no better way to end this conversation than what you just said. Ashley Preston, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Ashley Marie Preston. She is a speaker, activist, and founder of You Are Essential. You'll find links to her work on the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Emily Bosick, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson with associate production by Alex Murphy. 